They're all there hanging on to Nelson Mandela's every word. And this phone starts to ring. And Sir Alex looks round. And for anybody who's a Manchester United fan, they'll know who I'm talking about here. It's Albert Morgan's, the kit man, right? <laughs> and Sir Alex tells the story great. He said, I looked at him like I've never looked at anybody else. Meet Alan Keegan. You might know Alan as the voice of Old Trafford, where he's the corporate MC and matchday compare. Alan's family came to Manchester from the west of Ireland in the late 50s. They settled in Chilton-upon-Medlock, where his mum ran a shop, which, as you'll hear, was a real hub of the community. With players like George Best, Alan and his family were cemented as lifelong supporters of Manchester United. So what's it like to live the dream? Alan's been working at the club since the late 90s. In this episode, you'll hear the stories of the managers and players that have passed through during that time. And you'll hear what Alan's learned from them about leadership and teamwork too. I'm Lisa Morton, the founder of Roland Transfield PR, and this is We Built This City. Alan, thank you for joining me on We Built This City. It's an absolute pleasure, Lisa. It's took a while to get here, but we are here <laughs> and I'm so pleased because you're doing a fantastic job and I'm honoured to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Well, you know, you've, I've had you on the list for a long time. It's just taken us, as you say, a bit of time to do that. And we're here at Hotel Football in Heaven, overlooking the Theatre of Dreams. We'll talk about how much of a dream that is or a nightmare in a little bit, I think, at the moment for any United fans. But it's been your home here for 22 years. Yes. Do you still feel the same about it as you did the first day that you walked in? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm living the dream. Manchester United fan, boy and man. Absolutely had an amazing time uh, over the years. And to get the job as the announcer at Old Trafford was just a dream come true. It was a journey. Mm. Some people think you just drop on it, you know, but, you know, I had to do all the other bits in between before you get there. But honestly, it's the best job in the world. And the thrill of speaking in front of 75,000 people, it never, ever, ever gets boring. And obviously, Man United aren't doing great at the moment, but at the same time, they're the club that I love through thick and thin. When I was a young boy, you know, we had bad times, relegated. Everything is round in a full circle. So, yeah, I'm living the dream. Best job in the world. So, you're a born and bred Mancunian. And Very proud of that. Yes, I yeah. know that. And you were born in Chilton on Medlock in 1962. You're from a big Irish family. Yeah. Your mum and dad were born in County... Leitrim. Leitrim. So... Tell me about that. So you're the only one of your siblings that was born in Manchester. Yeah, that's correct. Um, Mum and dad, times were tough in Ireland. They lived in the west of Ireland, you know, very rural part, farming people. And it was a difficult time. You know, you're talking late 50s as such, and it was difficult. Still the impact of that, the war, believe it or not, you know, the sort of 10 years after the war and then where you're going with their lives at the time and obviously four children you know so it's very difficult so what happened is my dad used to come over to England and work in the construction industry like a lot of the the Irish did the, mm. the navigators or the navvies as they mm. were called so he came over for a few years before they made a decision for everybody to come and uh, they sort of decided to sell everything back home they had about 100 acres of land but it wasn't workable land as such and not a lot of money or income coming in so yeah they, they, they made the big decision to come to Manchester and and they moved to Charlton on Medlock where um, they had four children two boys two girls 
they managed, and we all need a bit of luck in our life, don't we? And mm. they were in the right place at the right time because my mum as a young girl had worked in a shop and she'd always dreamed of having her own shop. And it was her who instilled in me, you know, always follow your dream because it can happen. Don't ever think it can't happen for whatever reason. And she dreamed that she'd have her own shop one day. Fortunately, the local shop in the area on Cholton on Medlock, and if people aren't familiar with it, it's it's Hathersage Road. It's where St. Mary's Hospital is at one end. Our shop was at the other end, High Street, it was actually mm. called. They bought the property, uh, the shop. We all moved in. I was a baby. And uh, the most amazing childhood was created there. So big Irish area, you know, the local priest once did a little talk at one of my mum's birthdays, as you'd imagine, (laughs) Father Fallon. And uh, he gave a talk and he said, my mum's shop was like radio long site, you know, because it had all the information. If you wanted to know anything, if anybody was coming over from Ireland, you needed a flat or a landlord or, you know, my mum would give tick on the book. So it was very community based, you know, it was. I grew up in a household with Irish accents. I'm surprised they haven't got one. Yeah, you absolutely haven't, have you? No. It's, it's proper, it's mank, isn't it? You've definitely oh, well got and truly, accent. yeah. I love that, Tick on the Books. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I forgot about Tick. Yeah, Because well, we, we grew up in Salford and my grandma was <laughs> Modsall, actually. They've around the corner and um, everything's on with Tick on when tick, she was yeah. there we were growing up. And what kind of shop was it? It was a general grocer, so it was food. Never wanted for anything, but we never had excessive amounts of money, but never wanted for anything. There was five of us there, and it was one of those situations where it was just a brilliant place to live. It was There was an island, literally a little island across the road from, from our shop. I spent all my life, my young childhood, playing football on there and having a brilliant time, and everybody knew everybody, and we're just having the shop, you see, you knew everyone, you know, so yeah. it was just great to be involved in such a, a loving place and such a great community, oh. and I really mean that, you know, mm-hmm. I'm so proud of my Manchester Irish connection, because it's done so much for me over my journey. And so you said that your mum taught you always to be able to dream big, follow mm. your dream, what other influences do you find from that community as a young boy? Well, as a young boy, it was a strange one because you're going through that change, aren't you, when you're growing up? And it was a situation where I loved my family. I loved going back. My mum or dad or both used to bring me at the end of the school year, or the term in May or, uh, sorry, in July. And I'd go over to Ireland, stay with my aunties, my uncles for six weeks mm. on a farm. In them days, there was no telly. It was just pure living off the land, a whole new way of life. So... That upbringing, it always stands you in good stead. So to come back home to Manchester, at times it was difficult because you had the troubles in Northern Ireland, you see, and you could get into the divide, well, the Republic's different to the North or the North's different to the Republic. But as far as anybody outside of Ireland, they all thought everybody who spoke an Irish accent were the same. So you had the situation in the North of Ireland with the IRA and different troubles going on. So... It wasn't cool to be connected or so much Irish back in them days, you know, and I don't want to dwell on it too much, but but it wasn't, you know, because for something I was very proud of and the love that was shown by my Irish family and community, that's why I've always been proud of my Irish roots, but proud of my Mancunian roots as well. And, you know, the the two come together. So it was a difficult time, Lisa, but you, you grow through it, don't you? And you get through it and obviously... I know we spoke in the past, we touched on the bomb in Manchester mm. and it was the IRA and what an influence that had on the city. This podcast, we built this mm. city. Well, you know, the IRA bomb out of something absolutely terrible and atrocious 
I do believe something good came out of it, mm. the growth of the city centre of Manchester mm. with the industry. So I've always tried to take the positive out of something where there is a negative. Look and see if you can learn from your mistakes and look and see if you can learn from a terrible situation, mm. which um, which I think we did. We did. And talking about the IRA bomb, obviously we set the business up one month after that bomb and it, we were immediately involved in helping to build the city. So you passed the parlour team then, yeah. weren't you? Yeah, so what that was, it was a show, a radio show that was set up really with a new team by Eamon O'Neill. There was a, a, a team before that called Irish Line, very political, very politically motivated, and that was fine. But they wanted to go one way, and I think the BBC wanted them to go another way. So Eamon was part of that original team, and John McManus, who was the programme editor at the time, said to Eamon, look, you know, we want to continue with coming to the parlour, which was the name of the show, mm. with you at the front of it, and we wanted to bring in different features, if you like, so music, sport, poetry, all to do with Irish culture. So um, I'd heard that he was setting up this new show, and I approached Eamon and said, look, can I get involved? You know, I'll, I'll do anything you want, make the tea, do the running. And um, I was sort of quite popular in the Irish community as a DJ at the time. So I had that bit of credibility, you know, where I was mm. out in the in the community and mixing and socialising. So Eamon gave me opportunity and I'll be forever thankful. He was my mentor. He's still one of my best friends. And I love him so much, you know, because he, he helped me at the beginning. And we all need a break, you Absolutely. know, someone to have a bit of faith mm. in you. So I was part of the parlour team and the day that the bomb went off in Manchester, I, mean, I lived in Charlton at the time and you could hear the sort of ripple effect of it and the, the sound of it across all of South Manchester. And it was just, it was an unbelievable experience because it was one of those, a decision was made to still go with the show mm. because ultimately it wasn't us that had done anything to hurt our beautiful city, the team or the people involved with the show. You know, it was outside our control. So looking back, I think it was the right decision that we went on the air. But as you can imagine, we're giving out the phone number 2256198. Give us a call, blah, blah, blah. And people are phoning up and, and they're not happy. And there was a lot of aggression, a mm. lot of verbal aggression on the line. You know, we're taking, not live a hasten to add. You know, it was obviously we had people doing the phone as part of the team. So... That was a lesson learned. I think we did learn from it as a community as well, mm. you know. I mean, even my mum, she was embarrassed to go out to the shops yeah. after that for, for, for many, many months because she was as broad as you could get, you know. She was from the west of Ireland, as I've already said, and she found it difficult. And she was just this Irish lady trying to make a living in a city that she's adopted as a home, you know, and nearly to the point where she'd lived... Half a life yeah. in, in Manchester. So you're a lifelong United fan. So how much of an impression did the Man United, the Irish Manchester United players have on you as a family? Definitely. I mean, I think that's, that's the connection because my dad, as I mentioned before, you know, absolutely 100% Irishman worked in the building game. But... He loved Manchester United and I think the influence would be George Best, mm. you know, like all great Irish people, you know, he was there, he was the the sort of idol of all the fans and probably the greatest football of his generation. So with that, you had that continuity of the Irish supporting, I would say mainly Man United mm. at the time, you know, and 
they weren't always necessarily doing brilliant, but obviously the 68 European Cup final, George Best, he scored a goal. You know, the tragedy of uh, 1958 as well, Munich, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of like heartbreak for Manchester United and therefore a lot of love for the club. So those things, I think, entwined with the, the Munich disaster and then obviously winning the European Cup in 68 and George Best being the greatest footballer on the planet. So <laughs> big Irish influence. And they've always had a a sort of stream of Irish players, you know, right through to the treble winners of 99, Dennis Irwin, who's now a great friend of mm. mine, you know, and these are the things yeah. that have come out of the job, yeah. you know, on the journey. It's yeah. been brilliant. And if you were little, I can ever imagine knowing that, you know, you'd be friends with those players. Well, exactly. And, it, and it's like, um, it's a little bit embarrassing sometimes because I suppose if you want to say heroes, um, then Brian Robson would probably be one of my heroes. Mm. And I've done so much stuff with with Robbo now, you know, and mm. I've done events where he's actually said, I'll do the event as long as Alan Keegan's hosting it oh. and a Q&A. And these are the things that form my jigsaw, mm. that, that Mancunian sort of journey that I've been on, you mm. know, and a working class kid from Charlton on Medlock. And here I am like with one of United's all-time greatest players and, and he is a friend, you know. And I know your parents have passed now. Were they alive when you were... No, sadly, my dad died when I was quite young. He died when I was only 22, you know, so it was a great loss. He he died relatively young because when you're starting heading towards his age, you're thinking, wow, I'm not ready for going yet because he died at 64, you know, and uh, it was was a very big loss in my life because he was a massive influence, Mm. you know, heartbreaking. But my mum... She she was at the other end and she lived till she was 92. Nice. So she was there all the way through it. And, and listen, I've got loads of little stories, but one story, the day that my mum passed away and my mum always said to me, you know, if you feel up to it, always go and do United. Earn your few pound, she said, because, you know, if you've got the strength and I'll be with you, Aww. you know. Anyway, it was always going to happen. She was going to die the day I had a game at Old Trafford. Um, but it was not just any old day. It was the day that the name of the South Stand was changed to Sir Bobby Charlton. Yeah. And there was no way. It, everybody's replaceable and there's a fill-in for me and all the rest of it. But there was a lot going on that day. And it wasn't a normal day because, you know, the whole routine of the team coming out and Sir Bobby and Lady Norma mm. and Ed Woodward on the pitch and... It would have been hard for someone to drop in. So on that particular day, um, my mum died in the early hours of the Sunday morning. And I, I, I said to my immediate boss at the time and, and Marie Woodward, Marie Marin, who I worked with Woody on a match day, I just said, look, my mum's passed away this morning, but I'd prefer it if you didn't tell anybody in the club because I just want to do the game and be occupied. And, um, and honestly, it was a great day. You know, she was with me and uh, it all went very well. That's such a lovely story. It's a sad story, but it's a lovely story. It That's is. what she would have wanted. She would have. Yeah. She would have, yeah. She wanted me to, she'd have wanted me to do it. So I didn't feel guilty. Mm. You know, I knew she was there with me and uh, it just was a fantastic memory. And it's, it's great to share it with you now, you know, because it's a bit, yeah. of, bit of my story. That's so lovely. Your road to United started with the Junior Blues, did it? Is yes. that right? And we were Junior Blues because... I grew up in a blue family right, and yeah. I actually had to share a bedroom with yeah. my brother who was two years younger than me, so we were 10 right. and I had to sleep under a poster of Colin Bell. Wow. So I'm PTSD wow. now, yeah, yeah, <laughs> although yeah. Colin Bell is an amazing hero. Yeah, a lovely fella, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, when you're young and you're hungry, you've got to look for the opportunity 
and you've got to see it and seek it and take it. And that's what I did. I got the opportunity at City by being offered the position because actually a, a little trip down memory lane, we all remember the great legend broadcaster in Manchester, James H. Reeve. Mm. Well, he used to do a show on Piccadilly Radio with Tommy Dock and um, James was hosting the Junior Blues, but he said to Ian Niven, who was the president at the time of the Junior Blues, I'm leaving at Christmas and they were looking for someone to co-host or actually host the Junior Blues. Used about four or 500 used to meet at the City Social <laughs> Club at Main Road. I don't know if you've ever went there, but it was absolutely crazy. Yeah. Anyway, two different people. I mean, this is a whole podcast on its own, but it's about being in the right place at the right time. Two different people recommended me to Ian Niven, who didn't know each other, but dropped my name to him because I said, I need a compare, I need a host to do me Junior Blues. And when the second person said it to him, he said, well, hang on a minute, he's a red. I can't have a red doing it. But anyway, whether he was desperate or whatever happened, he said, I'll meet him, I'll meet him. And I remember meeting him, the Fletcher's Arms in Denton it was, right? And I chatted with him and we got on. And I think, do you know what I think he loved? I think he loved me Mancunianess. And I think he loved the accent and he just said, oh, you're a proper man, can't you? you know? And I said, well, yeah, I am. You know. And he said, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll let you do it. We'll let you do it from January to May, but then I'm going to find someone proper to do it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, you couldn't take it any other way. So I said, okay. Um, and I said, and I've always called him Mr. Niven, never Ian. It was always Mr. Niven. And I said, uh, well, okay, that's fine, you know. And, and you're looking for your break, aren't you? You, you want to get in. Yeah. And it was my break, my opportunity. And do you know what the, what the money was? Um. The wages were two season tickets for the rest of the season. <laughs> <laughs> and the only advantage of that was we'd already played them at Old Trafford. So I thought, well, I've got my derby Don't ticket. Tickets like, yeah. But in the, in the city oh, end? Oh, in the city end, yeah. No yeah. way. But, but, oh, God. Yeah. And, uh, How was that? <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was interesting. But listen, it's, it's part of the journey, as we keep It's so saying. true, isn't it? You, you do take those opportunities. It might not seem like the one that, is going to get you there but it's just moving the needle isn't it yeah, all the time it is. those little things and someone at the city end at the derby my son years ago some friends of ours have got seats in the family stand yeah. and they, they took Alex with them to the derby but he said I'm never doing that again city one he had to do the Poznan in the oh. stand he said never again no, no and then recently at a derby his dad's a city fan and uh, Alex was in the way end and his dad was literally about four four seats away in oh, the, yeah no. and he said like no. they were looking at each other like they absolutely hated each other <laughs> <laughs> friends after but yeah in the most for like 90 minutes exactly completely yeah. enemies yeah. yeah so how did it feel to be the announcer to the wrong coloured team well it was progressive it yeah. just didn't happen because yeah. what what was happening very quickly is that I was hosting the junior blues so how that worked is they had a junior blues meeting once a month mm on a Sunday in the City Social Club. Mm. And basically it was a two-hour job. Four or 500 would turn up, parents and kids, mm. and you might have had four or five of the first team. It just wouldn't happen like that now. Yeah. But it was brilliant. So I'm talking Nicky Weaver, King Cladsey, that era. Mm. And it was brilliant. And what a way to cut your teeth mm. for me. You know, it was just a brilliant training ground, you know, back to interviewing and back to sort of massaging even the egos back then, you know, <laughs> making sure you ask the right number of questions to the same players and not too many to that one and not enough to this. And then what happened was the club were sort of 
looking ahead and they said to me, listen, would you do what they call the warm-up on the pitch? So before the main announcer, which at that time was Vince Miller, who I've always regarded as the, the king of the compares, and obviously in the greater Manchester area, he was known for doing the dinner circuit and he was well-renowned for being a Manchester City fan, but he worked at United. So Vince was always a character. So Vince was the main announcer, but what they'd do with me, say it was a three o'clock kickoff, they'd say to me, can you go on about quarter to two, do half an hour to quarter past two, and then hand over to Vince? And I did. So that was my introduction to talking on a pitch. And again, what an opportunity. Yeah, and like, So then when Vince was away or on holiday, they asked me to fill in. So I did get a fee for that. Um, do you want me to tell you? Go on. I got 50 quid. Right? <laughs> it was never about the money. No, it never was. But I got 50 quid yeah. for doing it. And then when Vince was off, I got his fee as well, you know, which was 100 quid. So all great memories, Lisa. Yeah. And, and I mean, such fantastic memories. What I can look back on and honestly say, hand of my heart, it was never about the money. Mm. I wanted the experience, you know. And yeah. if I couldn't get a job at United, then City, you know, it was great to be involved. You got headhunted from United, didn't you? From City. So how the job came about at United, I was working at City, having a great time, loving it, really learning the ropes. And City, it wasn't the greatest football in the world, but there was never a dull moment there, you know, and it was, it was great. It really was, you know, and the spin-offs were brilliant. Like Queen played at Main Road, the Rolling Stones did, mm. David Bowie did, Rod Stewart did. And I, as a perk, <laughs> Mr Niven got me tickets, you know, so although I didn't get a fee, I got to see some of the greatest yeah. rock stars in the world, yeah. you know, and that was just brilliant. Mm. A friend of mine, who I'll name drop, Sean Higgins, he had four corporate tickets in the Manchester suite. So I'm very, very lucky because I married a woman who loves football. So we don't drink or smoke, never have. So we'd go to the game to Man United. We have two season tickets in the Stratford and still have them now. Um, so we do all that. Anyway, Sean had these corporate tickets and he'd say, if my client doesn't turn up, I'll give you a ring on Saturday morning, you know. So I said, bro, that's fine. And so one Saturday morning he rings me up and says, my client's let me down. Do you want to come and join us? Well, I'd never experienced the corporate side and it was fantastic. Again, back to that working class yeah. kid. I'd never, I was looking to get a ticket for the stand. So I'm going in and it's, you're there like, three hours before the kickoff and it's <laughs> fine dine and you get a gift on the table and and they have a, they have a compare. Yeah. I know they've got a compare and it's Aidan J. Harvey, no disrespect to him, but you couldn't get a more, well, he was from Liverpool, <laughs> right? And he had a, a Scouse accent that was really to the edge, more so than my Mancunian mm. accent. Did a professional job, but I'm sat there thinking, this is Manchester United. <laughs> They've got a scouser comparing to 300 people. Don't think you'd ever do that nowadays, no, do you? No, 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 absolutely not. But anyway, that was fine and I enjoyed it and it was great. And then about a month later, he rings me. He's got another client who's not turned up. So I go this time and then he's got a host that used to play for Everton and, dare I say, Dirty Leeds. <laughs> Duncan McKenzie hosting the suite. And I said to my mate, what? Can they not get compares for this room? So what I did... You've got to see the opportunity. <laughs> I wrote a good old-fashioned letter to Danny McGregor, who was the commercial manager mm -hmm. of Manchester United. What a guy. What a beautiful human being. Lovely man. Salt of the earth. I think he was from Salford. Worked his way up. He was the commercial manager. And I wrote to him with this idea. You know, dear Danny, I've attended X, Y, and Z. I've got, a, I've got an idea that would enhance the match day experience. I'd love to meet you to talk about it. 
sent the letter off, never heard a thing. So I said to my wife one morning, it was a Monday morning, I'm going to ring United and see if I can have a word with uh, his PA. Because you've always got to get to the PA, mm, haven't you? Absolutely, the gatekeeper. Get, yeah, <laughs> never going to get to Danny McGregor. So I'd done all the homework. It was actually through his PA I'd sent the letter. and, I, and um, So I rang up, uh, hello, hello. I said, uh, could I speak to, she was called Alison Blackburn, we're dead good friends now. I said, uh, could I speak to Alison Blackburn, please? And they went, who is it? And I said, oh, it's Alan Keegan from Main Road. You know, I didn't say Manchester City. I said Main Road, you know. I said, all right, hold on. Put me on hold and this mute. I'm thinking, what am I going to say? <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm sat here now. I'm, and it was the longest 20 seconds, Lisa, of my life. Anyway, she, she had this beautiful Scottish accent, Alison. She picks up the phone. She goes, hello, Alan. She said, I've been meaning to phone you. <laughs> and she says, bingo. Yeah, bingo. I didn't have to say anything. She said, Danny wants to meet you. He's intrigued by this. I can enhance the match day experience. So he said, it was on a Monday. He said, are you free on Friday at 10 o'clock? He's got half an hour in his diary. Changed my life, that meeting. Changed my life. Went in, and the idea was that I was I hosted the suite. So he said, we'll give you two games at the start of the season, see how you get on. This meeting took place about March. He said, we'll give you two games next season, see how you get on. So I said, right, that's fine. That's all I asked for. And what I did, I'd gone in with a quiz idea that it sounds nothing now, but 20 questions, you put it on each table. So there might be six United fans and four of the away team and you mix them up. And he looked at it and he went, it's so simple, it's brilliant. And I said, we'll do the answers at the end while they're all waiting for the traffic to go. And I said, it'll only cost you a bottle of wine. Is and that it, you that created that quiz? Because yeah. we used to be in the Manchester Suite and I missed the quiz. We don't have it Did where we are now. No, no, that's another story. <laughs> oh, that was right? me. That oh, was me. That's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, the club rang me and said, can you fill in for Wilf McGuinness, who most Manchester United fans will know, you know, was not only um, an ex-player for Manchester United, but he also captained Manchester United and became the manager when Sir Matt Busby retired. So he had a, a history and a legacy with Manchester United. And then obviously on a match day, he was one of the hosts and compares in the room and they're asking me to fill in for this Manchester United legend. <laughs> it was the only job I've ever gone for or been given where I didn't ask what the money was. I just turned mm. up and did it. And you know what? Out of 10, it was an eight out of 10. It went well. So then they said, right, we'll be in touch. And I thought, well, let's see if anybody gives me any feedback. Never had any feedback. And what I didn't know is Danny McGregor's son worked in the room. So he went back and fed it to his dad. You see. Anyway, cut a long story short, I get a call off Alison. Can you come in for a pre-host meeting? Uh, it's in, we're having a, we'll have a meal in a box and blah, blah, blah. And this was like the end of July, early August, before the season started. So I, I walk in and there's all these compares and holes. Vince Miller was there. There was loads of other Stuart Pearson who did the hospitality, Wilf McGuinness, Norman Whiteside. Mm. Anyway, I sit down. And uh, I've not don't remember, I've not spoke to Danny McGregor since that day in his office back in March, whenever it was, right? I've got these two games, so I'm thinking, great, you know, I've got to prove myself. There's about 10 of us around this table. And I'm looking out at the snooker table that is the pitch at Old Trafford. Mm. We're in a box. The working class kid from Charlton on Medlock can't believe it, you know. <laughs> and uh, Danny McGregor says, I'd like to introduce Alan Keegan. He's going to be the host and compare in the Manchester suite for the rest of the season. 25 games. 
Lisa. You had no idea that was coming. I had no idea that was coming. Never asked me, never said, can you? Just announced <laughs> it, you know. But of course I could, because I'd have been there with, with you, you know, anyway. Changed my life. Amazing. Fantastic. How did you feel when you left that? Do you know what? I can't <laughs> remember walking out. I was I floated out. Because, listen, prior to that, I'd been bankrupt. Mm. So this was an opportunity, Lisa, that... Mm. I wasn't going to turn down and I was going to grab it with both hands and I was never, ever going to let it slip. Mm. And I was always going to be professional and make sure that I held on to it. And then how long after that was it when you became the... So what had happened, I did the hospitality suite in the Manchester suite for two years, two seasons. And then I used to do a little bit of walk-on work, you know, like, just like TV stuff. I know. Yeah. Coronation Street. Yeah, Coronation Street. <laughs> I Will we have time? I didn't know that. Prison <laughs> yeah. officer. <laughs> yeah, prison officer, yeah. But this particular one, I'd done a night on Cold Feet. Oh, right. Where they were filming a scene with John Thompson at JD Sports at Trafford Park for a five-a-side football tournament. <laughs> so I came home in the early hours and I was shattered. Anyway, my wife uh, was a teacher. She'd gone gone to work or got to go to it my phone rang I never answered it but I listened to this answer message afterwards and it was um he spoke very well it was Ken Ramsden who at the time was the assistant secretary of Manchester United and he said hello Alan it's Ken Ramsden from Manchester United said I'd like to give me a call please if you don't mind I'm thinking hang on did I say something at the last United game in the suite that was like two mm. levels down from the high almighty you know so I rang Ken and said, hello, blah, blah, blah. And basically, I was interviewed by Ken, but I didn't realise it was an interview because he said to me, tell me from the minute you arrive at City that you get out of your car, tell me everything you do till when you go home. And he made me go through every single stage. Where do you get your notes? Is it from the reception? Who do you get them off? Who do you report to? How does it work? What do you do at half time?" What do you announce? What don't you announce? Blah, blah, blah. Now, I didn't realise it was an interview mm. <laughs> because obviously I'm thinking I've got a great job. I'm in the Manchester suite, you know. Anyway, as a result, they offered me the job as the announcer. But I had to leave City. Yeah, That obviously. was the proviso, yeah. Which, at the time, they just got promoted as well. So we were looking forward to being in mm. the Premier League. You know, I used the word we, you know, as a, an employee of the club. So I had to meet Chris Bird, who's a good friend of mine, and I'm sure you know him mm. very well. And that was a very hard conversation because Chris had looked after me and mm. I'd gone through a tough time in my life, a very difficult time. And Chris Bird probably doesn't realise that, you know, hopefully if he listens to this, you know, I've got a lot to thank him for because you know what he showed in me? Faith mm. and trust. And I never let him down. Mm. And he said that, you know, and I've met him since. And we have a laugh, you know, and they always say to me, how all the blues that I know, I bet you wish you were back at <laughs> yeah. City now, don't you? You know, uh, no, I don't. But anyway, you know. <laughs> then when you walked out onto that pitch, then oh. the first time in that role, how was that? Wow. I'm a great believer the Lord works in mysterious yeah. ways because you're guided, you know, mm. and you don't know who you meet along the way mm. that's going to have an influence on your life. And, I was so fortunate because my very first game was Dennis Irwin's friendly against Man City. So I knew all the players, yeah. you know, like, so there was no problem with pronunciations. <laughs> it was Dennis' testimonial. And afterwards, they asked me would I go up and host the suite. That is absolutely incredible. And it's like, you just 
life just takes you in the direction if you just follow you have commitment and faith yeah and just keep working hard and doing those even the things that feel really mundane and the yeah. small things they are yeah. the things that that lead you don't they you just got to be present get out of bed every morning yeah. and give it your best and you're right you have to you have to take small steps and mm. you have to believe and and have faith as you mm. said and don't look too far down the road look mm. at the journey in small stages and you'll get there mm. you know and have good people around you yeah have yeah. good people around you. That's very important. And I went. I mentioned uh, Chris Bird before, and Danny McGregor, and all these people, and, and Ken Ramsden. Mm. What they what they had in me, they had faith and mm. they had trust. And you can't buy that no. for someone to trust you. You know. And 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 I remember the day I realised uh, Sir Alex trusted me. It was a beautiful feeling to know that he trusted me, but it didn't happen overnight. No. No, and you're saying that you can't buy it. It's it's down to you to create that trust, isn't it? People don't they don't give that out without knowing that you've done those hard yards and that you've shown up and yeah. had integrity. Yeah, integrity, trust, honesty, and and you've just got to believe in yourself, mm. you know. And you don't always get it right. And I certainly haven't. Mm. I've made a lot of mistakes, a lot of them. And what did you learn from Sir Alex at his time at the club? What a leader. Mm unbelievable man I was really nervous when I was in his company in the early years you know because I did a lot of events with him and towards his end towards the last two years when he retired in 2013 I, I seemed to do loads and loads with him you know and I got to know his way and it got to the point where I could lead him into a brilliant story because I'd heard all these different stories and we, we'd read the audience you know because like, uh, you know, I do a lot of motivational speaking now, you know, because I've been down a lot of roads and, and I learned from him and his book, you know, Leadership. Mm. If you've not read it, I, I reckon... Everyone should read that book yeah, for they sure. Should, they should yeah. be in everybody's top ten. Yeah. But to be with him and to sit with him and then for him to know you, and when he walks in a room, mm. the aura that he has, he's yeah. just unbelievable. But... He tells this story, and this is what I mean. I got to know his stories, mm. you see. And if, if when I was looking at the room, and he knew he could trust me, mm. uh, and I said, "Sir Alex, tell us a story about when you were on tour in South Africa with the team, and they were meeting Nelson Mandela, and it was like in a, a coliseum sort of type thing with a big throne, marble chair there, and the players turn up, and Beckham's got these braids, and the team are there, and Nelson Mandela walks in, and he's dead sort of matter of fact, and Sir Alex is saying to us that he had the aura, like I described about mm. Sir Alex. You know, Sir Alex yeah. is saying, yeah. Nelson Mandela walks in the room and we're just all holding <laughs> our breath, you know. Anyway, they're all there hanging on to Nelson Mandela's every word. And this phone starts to ring. And Sir Alex looks round. And for anybody who's a Manchester United fan, they'll know who I'm talking about here. It's Albert Morgan's, the kit man, right? <laughs> and if you know Albert, he's a proper character. But anyway, so the phone's ringing and Sir Alex tells the story great. He said, I looked at him like I've never looked at anybody else. I said, honestly, Sir Alex, you know, that must be some luck. And Albert's like that with his phone. <laughs> it's all, he, he can't like turn it off. And we've all been there, haven't we? Yeah. You're trying to turn your phone off and the longer you try, it just keeps ringing. Anyway. It all, he got it turned off and the meeting carries on. Albert, when it finished, he was first out of that room and he ran on the coach. Anyway, he hid at the back and Sir Alex went all the way down the back looking for him and 
It, it's just a lovely, beautiful story, you know, about meeting Nelson Mandela and the phone goes. And the goes phone's going like, yeah. And like, you know, it's Albert the kit man. <laughs> what I wanted to ask you also is, what was it like when Ronaldo made his second debut here? It was unbelievable because, you know, obviously there was rumours that he was going to go to City and, you know, he was absolutely idolised and loved by Manchester United Mm. fans. And, but we weren't sure how it was going to work. And, And what United decided was that they didn't want any big sort of fanfare prior to him coming out for the warm-up and all this, whereas the week or so before, we did Varane, mm. and he came out like a rock star and mm. did the big introduction, and he walked out. And But I only knew 10 minutes beforehand I was doing that, you know, because that's how tight it was, and he walked out, and he looked the part. So with Ronaldo, it was quite interesting because the club got in touch with me, and you can imagine from a media point of view how busy it was. So the media department got in touch with me and said, can you record you welcoming Ronaldo, you know, when you do the lineup, like, and I said, right, okay, um, I'll try, you know, but obviously that's my bit where I don't want to get it wrong, you know, so <laughs> I, I sort of didn't have a mic in one hand and a phone in the other, so I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Anyway, I got the lovely uh, PN Muhlenstein, Remy Muhlenstein's daughter, who's doing a lot in broadcasting mm-hmm. now, so I said, PN, when I do the team read, will you record it for me? Anyway, she did an amazing job. Basically, to explain what I did, I did the team lineup. Number one, David De Gea, you know, live in the to stadium. Number two, number three, number four, and welcome home. Number seven, and it just <laughs> absolutely, I don't know if you were there. I was there, yeah. It erupted. There was never such a feeling. It took over the whole emotion, you know. And um, so I sent it straight to the club then, because you know what these things are like. They want it now, don't they? Yeah. They put it on the Man United Instagram. Mm. So all of a sudden, for about 48 <laughs> hours, my social media profile's clicking, 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 just going up all over the place, you know. Well, so. we've got the clip to play now. Brilliant. So how do you actually get the name, the voice of Old Trafford? It really fell lucky for me. And indirectly, the club gave me the title, which gave me the permission to use it. So I'd been the announcer for about three years, about 2003, and MUTV wanted to shadow me for the day. And from so when I walked into the reception, they had a camera there. It was quite intimidating, mm. actually. And... Um, I was always quite friendly with John O'Shea, the Irish connection, mm. and I was pitch side talking to him. You've got a camera light. They've got permission, obviously, because it was MUTV. They're on your shoulder and having a conversation with you. So they followed me for the whole day doing the announcements, pitch side, after the game, final announcements, walking back to the car in the car park. And they put it on this like it was a Christmas DVD with all different chapters. So they had everything, the captain speaks and all this and different things with different parts of the club. The, the head chef had done a section on it. And on my section, they'd called it the voice of Old Trafford, Alan Keegan. 
So I thought, I'm having that. The club have given me. I've not gone out there trying to say I'm the voice of Old Trafford. They've given me that sort of title and I've used it ever since. And absolutely, why not? (laughs) And why not? And it's been brilliant. few years ago Roland Ransfield we completely remodeled all the values that are important to us and the one that stands out for me for you is never leave the game early from a personal point of view I think when you're young you do cut corners because mm-hmm. you think you know better or you can do it a better way by missing out certain things but it's only with the experience of getting it wrong mm-hmm. it's the wrong way to do it isn't mm-hmm. it so you have to do it right from the very beginning and it doesn't matter. I'm a great believer of however small the project is, do it right. Mm. And then when you get a big project, they'll trust you to do it right because yeah. you did the small one right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, you know, we have part of our values is about learning from your mistakes. And we we're talking about that before, weren't we? Obviously, you said earlier that you um, found yourself in a situation where you had to go bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. Just tell me a bit about that and what you learned from that. Yeah, well, I was fairly young. Um, I'd got into the property game again the work ethic of my mum and dad and encouraging me and I've never drank I've never smoked mm-hmm. so that helped when I was DJing you know because obviously I wasn't in a, an environment where yeah. you know I was getting intoxicated <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with yeah. it and good luck to everybody yeah. who does but you know over your, your lifetime there are challenges and a challenge for me one of the biggest in my life and that been a few was when I went bankrupt because for all intents and purposes, Lucy, you've failed. You have failed. And it's it's not a nice feeling. And I was very low and I was down. And and it was at a time in the 90s when the, the interest rate was 15%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I grew too big too quick. I thought everything I touched would work and it didn't. And you come crashing back down and, you know, your ego takes a hit. You've got nothing. It's all gone, you know, and you've got to start back from square mm-hmm. one, which I did. And hence why I went back into education. I looked at what I love. And it's the old line, you know, if you get a job that you love, you never work a day in your life. But, you know, I'm sure students will be sitting somewhere in the UK now say, I've had a pound for every time Alan Keegan said that, because <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. You know, and it's about the ethics of, of one's life and whether, you know, you don't have to be famous to be a leader. And I like to think with some of the students that, I influence, you know, you know, leaders create leaders, they take the good points, don't we? All had a good teacher that we Absolutely. we believed in. And yeah. that, I always tried to leave that with the students. So that was that was a big point of my life. And uh, and also um being treated for melanoma at the Christie later on in life, you know, affected by the sun. So that was a change in my lifestyle because obviously, you know, I can't sunbathe, I can't get exposed to the sun, I have to have cream on every day. And uh, I go to the Christie every six months. So, you know, these challenges are what set you out from the others and take you to the next level and you learn from it. Mm. You know, I think there's an expression that very much part of your ethics, you've got to keep it real. Don't let it stop you. (laughs) No, that's very true. And it's not stopping you because you're doing a massive fundraiser, aren't you? Yeah, um, well, me and three other school friends, which is even better because we all went to that Little school in Charlton on Medlock. There's another lad who we know from 15. We played football with him. So we've all known each other from school days. And we've all had been touched by cancer one way or another. Two of the lads 
They've had their kidney replaced through cancer. One of the lads has lost a parent through cancer. So we're doing a big fundraiser for the Christie here in Manchester, the greatest city in the world, <laughs> uh, on July the 1st. And um, it's at St. Kentigan's Irish Social Club. We have to have an Irish connection. And we're limited to ticket sales, but we're going to have one brilliant night. And for one weekend only, Alan Keegan gets back on the deck. I was going to ask that question. Um, so if anybody can't make the night then there's going to be a Just Giving page and, you know, it'll all be on, it'll be on uh, my social media because my tagline back in the day was A-K-O-K. <laughs> <laughs> Real oh, 80s sell, it. wasn't it? Yeah. And love the bottom it. line said, you'll always be okay with A-K, you know. <laughs> hey? But I didn't copyright it, you know, there's no oh trademark God, on it. Yeah, so A-K-O-K, I used to have it on a number plate, A-K dash. Okay, Absolutely so I'm coming brilliant. back July the 1st. And then on the 2nd of July, there's a, a place called the Premier Lounge in Audenshaw. I'm doing a, a, a sort of one-hour spot for a friend of mine who runs it and owns it. There's another lad called Jed Graham who's going to do a big session. And then I'm just, and they're going to give us a raffle that night towards the Christie. Yeah. That sounds fun. Well, be definitely one of those. And in terms of you kind of talking a little bit about legacy there and, and you know, what what's important for you for legacy? Legacy is very important to me from the point of view that you are what you are. I only try and spend time with people who are good people, who give me, who are honest with me, but I'm honest with them. And I think if you can look at that as part of your legacy, then when you do move on or you walk out of the room, as you say, you know, and you can say, well, actually, you know, you know something, he tried his best. And sometimes along the journey, you hurt you, you hurt yourself, don't you? And, mm. and as a result of that, you do end up hurting people near you or the people close to you. And I'd like to think I've never done it intentionally, mm. you know, but ultimately you are what you are. And as I said a few moments ago, you've got to be honest with yourself, but you've got to find that contentment. Mm. Don't be too busy looking at what they've got or what she or he has. It's about what you've mm. got and the belief that you have, and the honesty in your soul. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it is. It's about what you have inside, isn't it? Not what you've got on the outside. Correct. So, I've got a quick fire for you. Yes. Favourite Manchester United football chants? Well, there are many. Mm. Uh, we have more than City. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first dig I've, I've brought into yeah, this true. conversation. But... Um, I used to love the one twenty times, you know, because we'd not Liverpool off the perch mm. and I used to just love it. And obviously when I'm stood there where I normally would stand in the middle of the two dugouts, I mean, some of the things I've heard over the years, it's just been an amazing experience. But to hear the fans singing 20 times, mm. just no other teams won the league 20 times, you know, I know Liverpool have got it 19 now and, and I do hope that City win the league this year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can record that and use it as evidence against me, but I do, you know, because I don't want Liverpool no. to do it. But no, I love 20 times, yeah. but very close when he was with us because he helped us win it, Robin Van Persie. Yeah. What's your favourite Irish venue in Manchester? Unfortunately, there's not as many now um, because the second and third and fourth generation are coming through. You know, it's not mm. like my, in my mum and dad's day. There were some brilliant Irish clubs. You know, if you go back, there was St. Brendan's down on City Road near Chester Road, a brilliant Irish club. There was 
Irish clubs that were like community clubs as well. You had St. Edward's in Rushome, you had St. Kentigan's in Fallowfield, which is still going. And that's where we've got our charity due in July. For many years, I DJed in the Palace in Levenjew, which was the old Palace Cinema. Was it an Irish club? You'd associate it with the Irish community, uh, albeit it crossed over. Um, and I've been very fortunate to be involved over many years, particularly when I did the radio at the Manchester Irish Festival with Pat Carney and all the team. So my favourite Irish club, there were many for different reasons, but if you were to really put me in a position to say which was it, I think because it was the very first one I ever went to, St Kentigan's in Fallowfield, because I went in there probably as a 14-year-old, listened to all the Irish bands, the local Irish bands, you know, like... Um, Paddy McElheron and, you know, Pat Jordan and Finian's Rainbow and all these brilliant bands, you know, the Borderline. And there were just bands that when I started DJing, I worked with, you know, but as a young boy going in, the Ranchers, there were just all these Irish bands. So I think St. Kentigan's purely because when you do a first, you mm. never forget it, do you? <laughs> no. and, and that was the first Irish club I'd ever gone That's into. so true. How would you describe Manchester to somebody who's not been here? I like that question. In many ways, sometimes I've described Manchester to some of my relatives in Ireland, right? Because they've never been. Mm. So, and I always open up at Old Trafford with the home of the greatest football club in the world. Mm. And I believe Manchester is the greatest city in the world. And I've been very fortunate, been all over the world, but I've always wanted to come home to Manchester. I've never wanted to live anywhere else. And I've been very fortunate to make my living out of living in the greatest city in the world. So what I would say to anybody is, if you want to do something, the opportunity to do it will always be in Manchester. So come to Manchester because you can live the dream and you can be whatever you want to be in our great city. Oh gosh, that's... I yeah. believe it. it's not just giving lip service. That's amazing. And then just lastly, if you could say anything over the tannoy... <laughs> oh you are taking what? me into a dark place what would you say <laughs> this will probably be on my last game when they give me free reign but no I mean I'm very careful what I say on the mic yeah. uh, and I suppose I'd just like to say if, if it was my last game my final match thank you Old Trafford you've helped me live the dream I love that and we're ending on that then <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me on We'll Get the City I've loved it and one of the best and most distinctive voices we've ever had on the podcast. And I just want to also thank you for sending that birthday video message from my son in lockdown when he was 21, that first lockdown, and it made his day. So thank you. And it's so clear how passionate you are about this city, not that city down the road. Um, and thank you for helping us to build it, Alan. Absolute pleasure, Lisa. Thank you very much indeed for having me. And I've loved being on your wonderful podcast, We Built This City. Alan built this city by having strong Irish roots, but an even stronger Manc accent, by seeing the opportunity and always taking it, and by being sick of hearing Scousers host the Manchester Suite at Old Trafford. We Built This City will be back on the 14th of April with Sally MacDonald, the Director of the Museum of Science and Industry. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at rdprtweets. 
or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you.